Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland on News Talk. Hello and welcome to Future Proof, the podcast. This is the show where we take a closer look at the world around us. I'm Jonathan McRae. Coming up on this week's programme, why we need to cast a sceptical eye when being sold miracle cures and alternative therapies in sport and wellness, particularly on the internet. Uh, if you'd like to get in touch, you can email us, science at newstalk.com. You can find us on Twitter. We're at Newstalk Science. First, though, it's time to look back at the week's science news. And we're joined in studio by uh, Catherine McGuinness. She's Research and Education Officer at Cavan County Museum. And Leanne Shanley, PhD researcher from the School of Biochemistry and Immunology at Trinity. Uh, our first story, Leanne, uh, really fantastic news. Uh, the UK Biobank has released an enormous amount of information that researchers across the world can use for better health outcomes. Yes, so this was a really exciting news article in the world of science this week. Um, So the UK Biobank, which is a charity that was set up in 2006, has been amassing huge amounts of data on up to half a million volunteers, so half a million participants. And they have just released um, the whole genome sequence of those half a million participants Uh, which means for the world of science research that this is a huge, a treasure trove of data, a huge amount of information that scientific researchers can put forward an application to access and then apply it to their own research. So this has massive implications for further understanding ourselves in terms of our health, our lifestyle, how environmental factors can play into our genetic makeup um, and also allows for the potential to identify drug targets or tailored therapies as a result of understanding how we interact with those drugs uh, via our genes. It's really crazy because when we started this program, we were talking about, you know, the first human genome being uh, fully sequenced. And, uh, you know, we we learned later that it was based on just five or six people. And yet here we're talking about uh, a database of 500,000 full genomes. I mean, that is an enormous amount of work. It is. It's a massive amount of work. And it does just kind of testify to how quickly these things move. So the Human Genome Project was a massive undertaking that started in 1990 and it took until I think 2003 for the first human genome to be sequenced based on that small sample size or that small set of people. And now we have the technology and we have the advancement um, and importantly UK Biobank had the funding to be able to sequence um, up to half a million human genomes just allowing for a massive expansion of our knowledge and information and what we have accessible to us now as researchers. Yeah, and and, you know... um you know, we we don't have anything like that here in Ireland. I mean, there there are so few um, uh, databases like that, even in the world. Mm-hmm. And to, and that yeah, fact that yeah. this has been made public, it's actually a huge gift from the UK to the rest of the scientific community. Mm-hmm. Um, are there limitations? Because with such a large number, you you presumably have people in there who who will have rare diseases. You will have uh, almost every representation of humans uh, on the planet because the UK is so diverse. Uh, what 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 are, what are the the Biobank said about this collection of people? Well, no, you're correct. That does uh, stand out in terms of how the UK Biobank have made this information available across the globe. Um, There are comparable biobanks such as, I think in America, it's all of us. So they are uh, recruiting more participants, but they have not yet made that amount of data available and it is only available to US-based researchers. So um, massive thanks to the UK Biobank for their generosity in terms of their data distribution. There have been certain limitations acknowledged in um, Journal of Science, which was recently reporting on it, in that uh, a massive amount of participants are of primarily European descent. So from a global perspective or in terms of understanding um, global genomes, Mm. um, we don't have necessarily as much data. So, for example, the figures that they gave were only 10,000 of the half a million participants were of African descent, a further 10,000 were of South Asian descent. So um, I think in terms of gathering 
a huge amount of information on a global scale, um, more participants or more data will be required from around the world. But you are correct, there is a huge amount of data contained in that half million as is. Yeah, and you know, one of the things that has to be said is um, the participants in this obviously gave up their um, their time to get sequence, but most importantly, they gave their permission for this uh, data to be shared uh, with the public. Mm-hmm. And in Ireland, this is a direction in which we want to go. Um, and I know there's a genomic policy that's kind of trying to address that, but it's fantastic to be able to access that to further medical research across the world. So really interesting to see what will come out of that. Our second story, Catherine, has to do with how animals get their spots and stripes. I thought we'd figure this out. (laughs) Okay, so this is a study looking at boxfish and the patterns that we get on their skin and animals in general. Because with animal patterns, uh, we know that it's got to do with camouflage and it's adapted to your habitat and you have Darwin and natural selection. But how do those patterns emerge in the first place? And in the embryo development, where does that come from? Now, back in the 1950s, Alan Turing actually had an idea around this. And what Alan Turing suggested was, he had a theory, the chemical basis of morphogenesis. And his idea was that there are some chemical agents that are moving through the tissue in the embryo development and that's producing these patterns. And it's counterintuitive because, you know, how can something that's diffuse create a sharp pattern? So no one really went near it again. And then uh, in more, uh, just this year, we had a team in Boulder, Colorado. One of the members, he was in the aquarium and he saw boxfish and he admired the pattern. And it just suddenly, he realised it looked very like a computer simulation that he had just done uh, to show the fusioforensis. And then he realised that maybe there was, this was this, uh, there was some connection between Turing's theory and this. So they went back to the lab they uh, produced a simulation using Turing's equations. It produced a similar uh, pattern to the boxfish, but a bit blurry. So they altered the equations to include this diffusioforensis and it produced a much sharper pattern. So what the suggestion here is now is that in embryo development, these chemical agents, they're moving through tissue, they're pulling pigment cells with them. And this gives us a, a new insight into embryo development and has all sorts of implications from computers all the way into medicine. Okay, really interesting. Um, our third story, Leanne, has to do with anaesthetics. It does. So, have you ever imagined or have you ever had a nightmare in which you wake up in the operating theatre, lying on surgical table in the middle of a procedure? Uh, yes, I've, I've feared it. It's never yes, happened to me, though. It it's a very calming place to go mentally. <laughs> <laughs> well, luckily, this isn't too common of an occurrence, um, largely due to the work of the anaesthetists that are um, present in the operating theatre, and they determine the dose to give the patient prior to surgery. They monitor the patient throughout and make sure that they remain unconscious and stable throughout uh, the duration. But a recent study has identified a way to improve on this. So one of the caveats to um, delivering anaesthetics to a patient is that you want to make sure that they are unconscious. So the dose is calculated based on parameters like their body weight or their age, but it's widely accepted that these aren't perfect calculations. Mm. So in order to mitigate any adverse effects, as discussed earlier, um, the anaesthetist will generally administer a slightly higher dose than is strictly necessary. But this has uh, sometimes um, complications in the sense that, let's say, elderly patients that suffer from dementia can suffer from confusion post-surgery as a result of overexposure, prolonged exposure to anaesthetics. So yeah, you basically don't want to get any more uh, anaesthetic than you absolutely have to. Exactly. Yeah. So this device has now been called the Goldilocks device in that it's able to deliver just the right amount of anaesthetic to the patient based on the patient's brain activity. So this study was performed by Professor Emery Brown in MIT and it was performed on non-human primates as the closest model we have to ourselves. So in the study, they implanted electrodes into the brain of these non-human primates 
they monitor their brain activity throughout and they use what is known as a closed loop anesthesia delivery device, um, which allows for the device itself to monitor the brain waves and tailor the anesthetic dose based on that. Right. So when we're under anesthetic, uh, the, the brain waves change mm-hmm. when we're when we're unconscious compared to when we're conscious. There are presumably yes. different different waves and more activity when we're conscious and less and, and exactly. different types of waves when we're under. Okay. Exactly. So this device, it's preset which waves you're expected to hit. So this device then monitors whether you're coming out of unconsciousness or whether you're entering a different state. Um, and it was able to monitor these primary brains every 20 seconds and adjust the anaesthetic dose as needed. So this is great... Um, benefits in the sense that now patients may not have to receive too much anaesthetic and suffer from long-term complications that can result from such. And also it alleviates the pressure on surgical staff in the surgery room that have to be constantly monitoring, constantly administering anaesthetic based on the requirements of the patients. Well, I didn't realise it was that instant. Every, every 20 seconds implies then that the, that a, a change in brain activity can be remedied in, within 20 seconds if you then uh, increase the dose or give another squirt of this anaesthetic. I didn't realise it was that it was that instant. I don't know about the instantaneous effect of it necessarily, but um, I guess the 20 second, second uh, intervals were set just to keep a close eye or constantly monitor exactly what's happening at the brainwave level. I mm. think the anaesthetic then is administered and maybe it might take a pause for a couple of intervals as it waits for it to work and then continue sampling as it goes yeah, on. Yeah, I remember we covered um, anaesthetics before and it, it was generally thought that we didn't really fully understand how they worked, mm. which um, yeah, uh, which yeah. is mad considering that um, we they happen every single day. <laughs> yeah. um, but but there is you know there is data to, to suggest that um, you get worse health outcomes the more you are under anaesthetic. Now maybe that's something to do with the fact that um, if you're more prone to accidents, mm. you've got worse outcomes. So it, there's a bit of grayness there. But um, fascinating uh, idea. Our final study, um, Catherine, has to do with. Uh, walnuts, testicles, mm-hmm. VR, mm-hmm. and University College Cork. Yeah, absolutely. And all, all of those. Yes, so uh, this was a symposium last uh, week. And um, this is a VR product. It's an educational product to teach men how to self-test for testicular diseases, including testicular cancer, uh, which is the most common cancer in men from 18 to 50, which is a huge range. Sorry, testicular cancer is the most common cancer in men 18 to 50? Yep. I did not know that. Yeah, yeah, it's all, it's often referred to as the young man's cancer, but it it can go up to yeah, you'd have it up to in the fifties. Then you move into prostate cancer. Um, so the study is in based in UCC. The Queen's uh, Belfast are involved as well, and they have these VR units which have an educational game inside and also information about how to self test. And they chose to use uh, GAA players. And they recruited 74 of them from nine clubs across Cork. Reason being, if you are playing certain games, you're more open to things like testicular trauma. Right. Which oh, yeah. Can, of course, yeah. Can, can, can attribute um, to testicular diseases. So how this works, uh, it's called EMAT, which is Enhancing Men's Awareness of Testicular Diseases. They wear a V or a unit for 10 minutes before a game and they wore uh, the same unit for 10 minutes after. The control group were given the exact same information, but in plain text with images. And the result of this is that there was a much better retention of knowledge and understanding of knowledge shown by the group using the VR unit. What was in the VR unit? So the VR unit, it started off with a game uh, and the game was um, how you identify maybe pain or different shapes and lumps 
or a different, you know, you have, you have testicular torsion. So it was just informing them that, forming the users that your testicles are like your fingerprint. They are unique to you. Right. And so you need to know what feels normal before you're able to feel what feels abnormal, what shouldn't be there, what's new. And, you know, the uh, the idea behind this is really to push men, young men, all men of all ages, I suppose, but definitely young men, to self-test regularly because the, the breast check guys are decades ahead of hmm. of men on this. You know, women, are, you know, often would self-check. So it's it's an educational just to, I suppose, push people towards more self-testing and try to catch any diseases quicker than usual. And so in the um, in the VR, they, they're sort of shown walnuts. Is that right? And those walnuts are supposed to represent testicles or something? So the walnuts represent more or less, yeah, the shape and the size of a of a healthy testicle, and what you would feel like if there was if there was an abnormality on the surface of the walnut. Okay, very so, and units with the VR. Uh, very interesting. Uh, Catherine McGuinness um, from Cavan County Museum and Leanne Shanley from Trinity College Dublin. Thanks very much. Now, for centuries, we have been marketed and sold products that claim extraordinary things only to find out that the evidence and the application doesn't really match up. So-called snake oil products have littered the internet recently. And despite pretty clear regulation, the internet has turned on the fire hose when it comes to advertising and marketing and regulators can't keep up. So to protect ourselves, we should be developing a sceptical approach. So says Dr. Nick Tiller. He is a, a research associate at the Institute of Respiratory Medicine and Exercise Physiology at Harbour UCLA. And he's the author of The Skeptic's Guide to Sports Science. Welcome to the programme, Nick. It's actually comical when you look back at, at some of the things that uh, humans uh, passed off as as beneficial for uh, health or exercise or or aesthetics, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. If you look at the the history, I mean, you you referenced snake oil just a, a moment ago, and snake oil was this product that was developed sort of um, well, it was I guess it was popularized in the old west in the late eighteen hundreds, early nineteen hundreds, and it was claimed that it could cure pain and cure ailments, and there was this long sort of laundry list of things that you could take snake oil for. And it wasn't until the early 1900s when we had developments in analytical chemistry, we could actually look at the ingredients of snake oil. We found that it actually contained no active ingredient, nothing that could cure pain or that could reduce soreness. The snake oil that was tested, did it have any snake in it? Right. So typically the original formulation was actually derived from the Chinese water snake. It was developed uh, through traditional methods and you would you could actually extract the, the oil from the snake and it was used for, for many centuries in China, of course, as this sort of cure for pain and soreness and, and various ailments. But, um, but it was basically op- functioning on the placebo effect. It was this sort of expectation and belief of an effect when it was actually studied, at least when the, the more popular version in the Old West was studied. It was actually popularized by a chap called Clark Stanley, who made his fortune touring snake oil throughout the Old West. He did that pretty much unregulated for a couple of decades. And when they finally tested his product, they, they found that, uh, I mean, there, there was nothing in there that could actually reduce muscle pain or muscle soreness. And we use that term because I guess it was so prolific, but uh, there are lots of products since um, from brands that we all uh, know and love uh, that have made these stakes that they can improve our health or that they do a certain thing. And uh, time and time and time again, when we look to, to test some of those things, they, they, they fall short of, of what the, these people are claiming. 
Right. And this is something that I, I have written about a lot and I talk about it as a consciousness raiser because so many people are consumers in the modern health and wellness industry. Anytime that you've been to a health club or gym or had a personal trainer, used a supplement or a diet or bought a new pair of running sneakers, which is pretty much everyone in the population at some point or another, we've become consumers in this health and wellness industry. It's worth over $4 trillion worldwide. And people have to understand that the vast majority of things that we're sold in this industry are not supported by any kind of evidence. They're just uh, manufacturers. They have no obligation to science or evidence. And we as consumers are sort of, we are prey to the modern day snake oil salesman. So um, we've we've got to try and be better at making informed decisions when it comes to health and wellness. Can you give me some examples? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I'll give you some examples of some of the products that have actually that have been made by manufacturers who have actually been held accountable for their false claims. So um, back in the day, there was um, so this is back in the late 1700s, there was a product called Perkins's metallic tractors. And these were little sort of metal devices that you would just put in your pocket or hold close to your body. And uh, it was they claimed that it could cure inflammation and so forth. Um, And the, uh, the 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 doctor who developed the thing was actually struck off from the, from the med- medical register. Eventually, we spoke about Clark Stanley's snake oil, vitamin water, which is a very popular product by Coke. They claimed that it could um, prevent eye disease and um, and help with concentration, that kind of stuff. They were slapped with a hefty fine from from the uh, the FTC. Uh, you've got uh, green uh, coffee bean capsules that was popularized on Dr. Oz in the Americas. And again, this was something that they made these extraordinary claims and they were and it was supported by very unextraordinary evidence. Um, that's just a, a very short list of uh, New Balance toning sneakers as well. A lot of people will be familiar with those. They made uh, claims that they couldn't support with the evidence and they, they were um, hit with a lawsuit. So this is just a very short list of manufacturers who have actually been held accountable for their false claims but most are not because there are people the the regulatory bodies are inundated with with claims and they just don't have the time or the resources to investigate them all yeah i mean obviously those large companies that you mentioned very familiar to people their reputation is uh is huge and a, a fine may deter them and like you know a public humiliation of of having mm-hmm. to retract their claims may make a difference but for regulators particularly in America, it feels like it's sort of whack-a-mole when it comes to these sort of products. There's so many things being advertised. And when we look at, um, you know, TikTok or uh, certainly on, on, on Twitter, you have users trying to ratio uh, products because they're making claims that um, regulators haven't gotten around to. These, you know, tiny um, companies-based God knows where that that are selling products that claim to do things, and they're up for a very short period of time. They get the sales, they move on, and uh, and it seems to be. I would have thought maybe ten years ago we would have been, you know, we're in a reasonably good place and getting somewhere. And now it feels like it's the wild west on the internet again. Right, and and you've you've hit on a really important point, and this is the pervasive use of social media because nowadays anybody can come up with a product. They can make whatever claims they like about that product, and then they are immediately afforded the old West equivalent of a touring stage company and a you know a megaphone and an article in the in the magazine in in the in the print newspaper, and they have the potential to reach more people than Clark Stanley and his snake oil could reach in an entire lifetime. 
And the, the thing with social media is that you don't have to be an expert. In fact, when they've studied this, they found that the people who tend to have the most followers in terms of online influencers tend to have the least qualifications, you know, the fewest credentials and the fewest uh, vocational professional qualifications. And it kind of stands to reason, right? Because it, those individuals are the ones who do it full time. They do it for a living. They can put more time and resources into their, into their social media accounts. And they're much more likely to post much more sensational rhetoric. They'll make ridiculous claims, whereas the people who are more credential, they tend to be professionals, they're a little bit more tempered with their claims. And people love sensational claims. We find those those ridiculous clickbait headlines impossible to resist. Yeah, my, my theory for that is that it is very boring to be told over and over again, eat healthily and exercise more. And yet that... Uh, advice hasn't changed in 300 years. Right. Uh, and so it's difficult to write a new book about that. It's difficult to sell your magazine on that. Uh, it's difficult to get people to click on your website if that's the advice. Whereas in a, a you know, a new nettle diet or a, a lemon juice diet or uh, the, you know, the, what is it? Five, two fasting regime. Mm-hmm. All of these things are a different way of doing things. So what what is the skeptical approach then in the absence of, uh, regulators and lawmakers stopping these advertisements in time before they get to people and people end up ma- making purchases. And that, I mean, in, in many respects, it's not just health, uh, certainly on the internet. There's all these sorts of products making false claims about what they can and can't do. What yeah. What is the skeptical approach to these um, sort of advertisements and these sort of messages? How do we figure out what's, what is beneficial and what isn't? Yeah, absolutely. And as you said, it's not just in health and wellness, it's in cosmetics, it's in pretty much all walks of life. People are making uh, unproven claims in order to sell us something. It's not necessarily just to sell us a product in terms of a monetary exchange, but it could be to sell us an idea, right? And uh, and to be skeptical, the way that the general public use the term skepticism, they often use it as a synonym for uh, cynicism, which is to routinely just dismiss things out of hand or even contrarianism, right, which is just to be contrary by default. And uh, and a lot of the time people understand the word skeptic with its common prefixes like climate change skeptic or vaccine skeptic. And actually that's not what skepticism is at all. Skepticism in science is to judge the validity of claims based on objective evidence, or at the very least, if you don't have any evidence, just with, to withhold judgment. Okay, so uh, it's essentially about asking important questions to discern the actual truth of something, not just your own version of the truth, but the objective truth. And more specifically, it's about understanding and mitigating your biases, understanding the process of the scientific method, putting to side any of the outcomes that you might subconsciously desire, and um, of course, using logic and reason to make informed decisions. Mm. And everybody in the world would love to think that they have these skills already ingrained. The reality is people don't. Uh, To be a good skeptic and to be a good critical thinker requires time and it requires some a bit of study and you need to do a bit of reading and watch some lectures and listen, you can't choose to be a good thinker any more than you can choose to be a good guitarist or a good painter, right? These are skills that need to be acquired. And once you have those skills, you can use them to make in good informed decisions in every aspect of life. So that's kind of what I'm an advocate of. 
Let's um, try and put that into practice for people because this is, a, as you say, it's a skill to be exercised. If, if I'm shown an advertisement for uh, a cream that claims to be able to reduce uh, the wrinkles on my face significantly, something that really keeps me up at night. Mm. Um, what is the skeptical approach to that? If I don't have evidence of the contrary, this is a new thing and, you know, it's a breakthrough and so on. How do I analyze that from a skeptical point of view? Okay, so there are a bunch of steps that you can follow. The first thing is to look at where you're seeing the claim. So are you seeing the claim on the manufacturer's website? Are you seeing it in the news media? Are you seeing it on social media? Um, most of the time, this is where you're seeing most. Let's be honest, most people are seeing these things on social media or in a mag in an in a advert or commercial that they've seen in, in the media, on the, on the TV or in a magazine. So you need to think, okay, firstly, what are the, what are the motives underpinning this thing? Uh, is if it's coming straight from the manufacturer, well, of course, they're going to make these claims about the thing because they want you to buy it because they want your money. So you need to be a little bit skeptical of where the claims are coming from. If you see it on social media, perhaps you're following some, you know, a beautiful fitness influencer with an amazing physique. Are they getting paid? Are they getting sponsored to endorse the product? Right. Most of the time they are. And uh, I think in a recent study, one third of sponsored posts on Instagram weren't labeled as sponsored posts. So they are legally obligated to label the thing as sponsored or some kind of similar terminology. And then in at least one third of cases, they weren't doing that. So that's the first step is to think, okay, where is the claim coming from? And uh, is this likely to be impartial? The next thing to do is think about how plausible the claim is. Okay, so if I were selling you a pill, for example, and I said that it could um, double your intelligence by, you know, it could improve your intelligence. Um, Not and hard. It could, it could, right, <laughs> right, but but a doubling of intelligence, uh, I don't know, That that's quite a bold claim. Mm. And, uh, and the, the, it's one tablet and you take it once a week and I'm charging you $500 for it, 500, you know, whatever. And in, inherently, most people would be, um, very skeptical of that claim. It's not very plausible, right? Now it's a little bit harder to, okay, if somebody's produced some new face cream as you, as the example you gave, it's a little bit harder to know if that's plausible, but based on what we know about how the world works, is it a plausible claim? Um, yeah. yeah. And, I, and I think, um, the way I tend to approach something, when I see something brand new, uh, I think to myself, if this was true, wouldn't everybody be honest? If this was true, wouldn't, uh, people be talking about it in all of the major publications, wouldn't they be uh, analyzing it? And, and actually, as we saw with um, some weight uh, loss interventions, there was a huge amount of hype. And my initial, um, my initial thoughts were, I've seen this before. I wonder where it's going to go. And it turns out right. some of these, such, for example, Wegovy, they actually live up, you know, to, to, to some of the claims they're making and ha having dramatic weight loss for, for, um, for a patients who are um, obese. So um, it's really, really interesting to see, uh, to see some of these claims that are, are fairly significant. Every once in a while, they're right. But usually I, I, give the, um, I give the restriction of time. I say, let's see, in three weeks' time, if this is all over the internet, uh, all over, you know, um, known publications, then I'll feel like there's a bit of a there's a bit of a sense of um, trust being built there, and I feel like trust is either you know a, a slow dripping over time, someone consistently doing something for a long period of time, or it's a gush of everybody saying this is actually something huge, and and, and those being people that I trust, and and that's how I gauge it. Is that a skeptical way of doing it? 
Um, it, it is it is to a point. I mean, that can work both ways because uh, on the one hand, as you say, if you give it the element of time, then you see if the thing sticks around and if yeah. people are talking about it, then it, it maybe there's it's a little bit more su- substantial than just a gimmick or a fad that's going to fade away. It, it, that can also work against you because if something is very, very popular, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's that it's effective. This is the what we call the appeal to popularity, um, or it could also be the exposure effect. This idea that because we're exposed to something and we see it everywhere, we assume that it's popular. But you made an important point there: is is this idea of Wegovy, for example, which is an obesity drug? It's a it's what we call a GLP one agonist. And the difference between Wegovy and, and other sort of weight loss interventions is that it seems to be supported by this is number three in the step, by the way. Uh, is looking at the evidence and looking to see if there is good evidence to support the claims being made with Wegovy and Ozempic, which is uh, the, which is the the other form of the of of the drug that is aimed at, uh, at, at diabetics. Uh, there are just lots of clinical trials. There are lots of stage one to three trials, st- uh, phase one to three trials. They're very robust. They're using large data sets, but certainly for people who are obese or people who are very overweight with additional risk factors, these things seem to be very effective. And you can gauge the amount of evidence for something because physicians are prescribing it. It's approved Mm. by the FDA. There are governing bodies that are getting behind this thing. So looking at the evidence is, is step three. And if you're not able to look at the evidence because you're not a scientist, you're not trained to do so, Speak to somebody who is. Speak to yeah. an expert. Speak to a scientist, because these people are trained to understand the evidence. It, it's striking to me that sometimes people can do that, and because of their desperation to remedy the situation they're in, uh, they can ignore professional medical advice. And, and I think that's when these stories can be really powerful. People traveling the world trying to get um, unregulated stem cell therapies that they think will help them in a, a situation where modern medicine um, evidence-based medicine can't help them. And I think um, anyone listening who is who, who's considering taking radical therapies where uh, 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 the, the doctor involved is, is, is not, you know, a, a, a medic that's registered in a specific country that you, you know the regulations around and they are, they, if they're dismissing general medical advice, that to me is a big warning sign. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And people have to understand that w- People who are promoting, that are peddling pseudoscience, they prey on the desperate and the vulnerable Mm. because those people are much more likely to take experimental approaches. If something actually has a good body of evidence and it's been showed in controlled studies to work, then it will be incorporated into mainstream practice. And if by definition, if something is, uh, is alternative, then it's because there isn't enough evidence to use it. And I have interviewed hundreds and hundreds of qualified doctors about their work. All they want to do is help their patients. And it feels crazy that in 2023, we have people questioning, uh, you know, motives when if if it works, of course, they're going to prescribe it to their patients because they 99.999% of doctors want that for their patients. with all of these messages that we're getting uh, across the internet and from various sources, it is an important uh, approach to really think where is the evidence in these claims and and who is saying uh, these words and who is benefiting from it. So uh, Dr. Nick B. Tiller um, from uh, Harbour at UCLA, thanks very much for your time. Thanks, Jonathan. It was a pleasure.
All right, it's uh, time to go through some of your comments from last week. Lots of you loved that uh, chat with Tomas uh, Ryan from Trinity on uh, memories. Really interesting stuff. Uh, Lauren said, really insightful piece on memories and brains. Such a complex organ. I really enjoyed learning more about it. Well, you're very welcome, Lauren. And someone else said, um, we were talking about umbilical cords and uh, when to cut them. That was our other feature. And Dee says, when did it first start becoming common to cut umbilical cords? Well, kind of... Weirdly, it was the 18th century that we started um, cutting the umbilical cord, right? Um, so way back then. But in the early 19th century, 1801, a guy called Erasmus Darman wrote, another thing very injurious to the child is the tying and cutting of the nasal string too soon, which should always be left till the child has not only repeatedly breathed, but till all pulsation in the cord ceases, as otherwise the child is much weaker than it ought to be. 1801 they were saying the same things that new research has sort of found and we're going to be now applying that in hospitals across the world to leave the cord as it is until it stops pulsing. That's literally the sentence that we heard last week um, when we were hearing about uh, this new change in practice. So we were doing it wrong for over 200 years and now we're going back to knowledge that we, we sort of forgot about um, back in 1801 thanks to Erasmus Darwin. Well, that's it uh, from us on this week's podcast. Thank you to Marais O'Sullivan, Simon Keane, Steve Daunt and Hugo da Silva on sound. Thank you for listening. Uh, we'll be back with more on Tuesday in your podcast feed. In the meantime, stay curious. Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland. Sundays from midday on News Talk.